Peace be with you. If you're uh, new and visiting, welcome. We're glad you're here. Um, we're going to be in James, the book of James. So it's at the end of the Bible, near the end of the Bible, James 3. So if you've got a Bible, open it up to there, please. Follow along with us or turn your Bible on. If you're more of a digital person, that's okay. James 3, and, and I'm, I'm going to read all the way down to verse 18. And so if, if you're able to stand for the reading out of God's, of God's Word, do so now. If not, that's okay too. Um, we just like to do that occasionally to express our, that we stand under its authority, respect the Word. <clears throat> Here's what it says. Not many of you should become teachers, <laughs> my brothers, for you know that we, are, we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in, in what he says, he's a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If, if we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. And so also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. Tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting, the, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and then with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree... My brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs. Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes, from a, down, comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure and peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. This is the word of the Lord. You guys can have a seat. We're in a series, second week into a series of uh, looking carefully and responsibly at the problems that so often plague the church. Um, not just our church, but I'm definitely not excusing our church. Uh, problems that the Bible uh, addresses, actually, because ultimately the church's most um, formidable problem uh, is not just like a growing secular culture, as some people like to sometimes say. Or, or, or it's not that the fact that we just don't have enough Christians in places of power and prominence or like in the political seats. I actually just don't, th and it's okay if you disagree with me, but I just don't think that that's our biggest problem. I, I, I think the biggest problem is our own lack, my own, your own, our collective own, our corporate own lack of care and sense of agency over our own mistakes. That's what I think is one of our biggest problems. Mistakes um, that we're making as, 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 a ch as church people, making today, these mistakes that so often I, I see or I feel or I hear um, in the church, outside the church, these sorts of things, um, th things that I hear um, that are not, they're not new. They're not, 
they're not like just part of like kind of a postmodern culture thing. They're actually really old. They're an ancient problem. They stretch way back. Um, they're, 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 they're problems that people in the church were wrestling with long before these things came into our consciousness. And we're just kind of thinking about these problems, hopefully really carefully putting attention upon them, thinking about what we can do about it. There, um, I'm going to read to you. I, I, I love to read to you. You guys know this. So um, I want to read to you a, a, a bit, something I read years ago, and it, it's just I, it's from Eugene Peterson from The Jesus Way, this book. Um, I, I just think no one really, not many people have come across um, that writes as beautifully and wonderfully about who we are as a church. What are we for? Um, and, and this is just something that I think gets at kind of what we're addressing here. He says this, the widespread interest in what is often termed spirituality is in some ways a result of disillusionment and frustration with institutional religion. Much of this new spirituality avoids all trappings of liturgy and finance, fundraising campaigns and buildings, ecclesiastical bureaucracies and councils making hair-splitting decisions on theology, legislating and domesticating the spirit. This new spirituality sets itself in opposition to all that, It encourages us to explore our higher consciousness, cultivate beauty and awareness, find friends of like mind with whom we can converse and pray and then travel. Spirituality is an inward journey to the depths of our souls. Spirituality is dismissive of doctrines and building campaigns and formal worship and theologians. There is something to be said for this, but not much. It is true that the world of religion is responsible for an enormous amount of cruelty and oppression, war and prejudice and hate, pomp and circumstance. Being religious does not translate across the board into being good or trustworthy. Religion is one of the best covers for sin of almost all kinds. Pride, anger, lust, and greed are vermin that flourish under the floorboards of religion. Those of us who are identified with institutions or vocations in religion can't be too vigilant. The devil does some of his best work behind stained glass. We live at a time when there is a lot of this anti-institutionalism in the air. Quote, I love Jesus, but I just hate the church, is the theme that keeps reappearing with variations in many settings. So it's interesting to note that Jesus, who in abridged form is quite popular with the non-church crowd, was not anti-institutional. Jesus said, follow me, and then regularly led his followers into the two primary religious institutional structures of the day, the synagogue and then the temple. Neither institution was without its inadequacies, faults, and failures. All the same, Jesus didn't boycott the place. He didn't avoid either synagogue or temple. He regularly joined in the prayers in the small town synagogues, Scattered around Galilee, he made regular pilgrimages with thousands of his countrymen at the great appointed times of festival, worship in Jerusalem, temple, Passover, Pentecost, tabernacles, dedications, all of these Jesus did. Those who followed Jesus followed him into these buildings, those religious institutions. After his ascension, they continued to frequent both temple and synagogue. I just don't think we're going to find much support in Jesus for the contemporary preference for the golf course as a place of worship over First Baptist Church. Given the stories that the four gospel writers have written for us, it doesn't seem likely that if Jesus showed up today and were we invited to follow him, we would find ourselves taking a Sunday morning stroll out of the city, away from asphalted parking lots, away from church buildings filled with people more interested in gossip than gospel. Away from the city noise and the smells to quiet meadows and a quiet stream for a morning of meditation among the wildfires, <laughs> wildflowers. I love what he says, because although Jesus doesn't like problems in the church, he didn't like them back then. When you look at what the temple was doing and was happening inside of the temple and in the synagogue, it grieved him. It grieved him then, and it grieves him still to see what happens inside the church. That being said, he didn't give up on it. He died for it. And he's not giving up on it today. He's building a new kingdom and a new people right in the midst of an institution where, in large part, there's a lot of failings and mistakes going on. And so what I'm trying to say here is the way forward when we think about these problems 
is not to ignore the faults and failures of the church. Faults and failures that we participate in. But it's also not, the way forward is not to brood our way into deep bitterness and then just give up on it. Um, I think maturity, Christian maturity, Christian discipleship, if we think about it carefully and we think about it through the lens of Jesus and what he was doing then and what he wants to do for us now, I think maturity looks like this. Jesus, show me how I add me. I, I add to the grief in the community of life to which you died for. How do I bring a grief, a complication to it? Today, there's no mystery what we're talking about, right? <laughs> James 3. I read this passage yesterday to my kids in a little short, quiet time, and I was like, what, what was James 3 about? And they were like, God loves me. <laughs> I'm like, no. I mean, yes. <laughs> it's pretty simple. Tongue, right? The tongue, words, speech. How we communicate with those inside the church and outside the church. If you do a word study on the tongue in the Bible, like just say, all right, I'm just going to start like blank page, get it out, word document. I'm just going to, what are all the verses? You ever do that? Just Google like a word. It's like Bible verses on this. That's how we become Bible scholars, right? Um, if you do that, whoa, goodness gracious, you're going to fill your page. It's like it's not a topic that you're going to be like, what does the, does the Bible have anything to say about this? Oh, boy, it does. It's not a minor topic. It's not a minor problem in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's funny, you know, and not like ha-ha funny, like strange funny. Growing up in the church, I grew up in the church, and and by the way, I, I think I, for the most part, I think I had a really great experience. I, I felt very much loved and cared for. And so I, I'm not one of those pastor's kids that's just like, oh, it was terrible. It wasn't, it wasn't, that, it wasn't that terrible. I'm thankful for what I grew up in. But I experienced many things growing up in the church. And it's funny, growing up in the church, I remember picking up uh, very viscerally, like on this hypersensitivity to sexual sin. You know, like I didn't grow up, this might astound some of you. I, I didn't grow up with a computer in my house. And when I became a teenager, I was like, why do we not have a computer? Everybody else has a computer. They were like this big, you know, back then. And my parents were like, because images come through computers and we're not going to have images in our house. And I'm like, oh, you know, I mean, that was the thing. I just remember that. I remember that. But, but you know, I can't remember feeling the same kind of vigilance in the church around lying, slander, gossip, and abusive words. I don't remember anything. Maybe I just wasn't picking up on it, to be fair. Like maybe my ears, maybe as a teenager, I was just more hypersensitive to sex <laughs> and not like things like gossip and slander and maliciousness and all of that. Unloving, untruthful words are not minor, though, in the Bible. They are massive in the Bible. Do you know that in Revelation 21, 8, there's this passage, you're like, I don't like to read those passages, but there's this passage, Revelation 21 8, that talks about those that are going to see the, you know, in the end, going to be separated from God and cast into hell. And when you're reading the list of the th things that are getting them there, it's like the author names things like murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, and you're reading this list and you're like, uh-huh, makes sense, makes sense to me. And then you know what it says? Liars. Liars. And you're like, like, like big, big lies? <laughs> like, 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 like even little lies, you know, like, like, like even lies, like, yeah, honey, I like this food, you know, like those kind of. Lies, like little, and it's like, but the reality is, John the Revelator, he gives no nuance. Zero. Zero nuance there. And so it makes sense that Pastor James, who wrote this, is so spirited on the issue of controlling your tongue. James 3, verse 5, let's look at it again. He says this, so also, the tongue is a small, it's this little itty-bitty thing, the tongue. Yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small little fire. Here's the big idea, like the, the, the big lesson, the thing I want you to walk out with today, 
all right? Words are sneaky. Like, they're just, like, they, we, you, you should not be under any illusions about them. What I mean is, is they, they're small, they're everyday-ish, they just roll, words roll off of our tongue very easily, um, and yet they are the most powerful things you're carrying around all the time. They're so powerful. It's like you're walking around with loaded pistols. You can create life and you can create just death and destruction. Think about it. Creation of the world, according to Genesis, and what happens? God speaks it into existence. And like the first, you know, big failure, you know, happens, Genesis 3, and it's like what immediately takes place? Blame shifting. It's the woman you gave me. It's like, come on, words immediately are the problem. James is telling us very much here, there's a sense in which you you, you gather, you read chapter 3, and you go, I, th- I get it, James. I think what you're saying is don't underestimate the power of your mouth. You can get in a whole lot of trouble with how you talk. Here's how I would say it. To be casual about how you talk is to be a spiritual casualty. To be casual about it. To think, well, it's not, I know I can get, I can say stuff that, well, I just tell it like it is. Well, doing that is destructive. It's destructive. It means that it's destroying you, and actually, you're an incredible liability to everybody around you because you don't take your words seriously. If you really want to make radical changes in your presence, like how you show up in a room, how people experience you, if you really want to see the gospel take off, you really want to see God come alive in you and people just be like, man, when I'm in their presence, I just, something is different about them. If you really want to love God and you want to love others, because this is what the scriptures want for you, and you want to do it in this authentic and powerful way, here's what I would say. Get serious about how you talk. I don't think it's really over, we overcomplicate it. Get serious about it. Really begin to address it. I can explain what I mean. Don't, don't you dare think that James, and I think some people go to the book of James in this way. Some people love the book of James because they're like, I love Christian ethics. And then some people are like, I hate them, so I'm not reading that book. But don't think James is this graceless, angry old pastor who's kind of just this legalist. Because the reality is that James has, to be fair to James, because let's use the right hermeneutic. Let's use the right way of interpreting James. Let's go to Jesus. I think James is vigilant about speaking and how we speak because he's been listening. He had been listening to his brother, Jesus. (laughs) In case you didn't know, James was the brother of Jesus. He wasn't an original believer. He didn't start out that way. He didn't believe. I don't think he believed in him. Until after the resurrection, he was like, oh, yeah, okay, you're the real deal. Sorry. And so he's had been listening to the things that his brother was saying. One of the most sobering lines. So in case you, you're just like, well, that's just James. Well, okay, but one of the most sobering lines ever recorded of Jesus is on the use of our words. Matthew twelve thirty six. This is Jesus talking. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. You know, it's like, careless? Like, can't we use like vicious or something? Like, because careless? Because man, like in the morning before two cups of coffee, I'm a little careless. Like, that word careless? In Greek, it's argos. It just, it can mean lazy. Uh, it, 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 it can mean indifferent. You're just indifferent. Useless, even. Think about that. How many times do you speak? In a way, you're like not, it's not like you're, you're filled with something where you're trying to be angry, you're trying to be nasty. I mean, because there are times we do that, and we know it. Usually in our car by ourselves on Interstate 75. And you know what I mean? And you're like, well, there's no one really listening. Right, um, but 
how many times do we speak in a way, but we're just, there's a lazily kind of intent, like we're not thinking about how this will land and will it stick with them. How many times? I've done it so many times. I think this is why James begins this train of thought in chapter 3 with this caution to, be, to teachers. Don't, yeah, you don't really want to become that. I'm like, oh. why would he do that? Well, because to teach, you have to use a lot of words. And if you're going to have to use a lot of words, that means you get, there's all more the opportunity to fall into an unloving, uh, dishonest moment. Proverbs 10, verse 19 says, When words are many, Transgression is not lacking. So all you extroverts, big talkers, I will not ask you to raise your hand, but it's like, uh, there's lots, just lots of, because the reality is like in, you introvert, <laughs> you in, quiet introverted people, you're just like, you just have an advantage. And it's not because you're more spiritually mature. It's just because you don't talk a lot. And so you just don't make as many mistakes as the people like me that are just up here like, meh, 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 you know? There's just not as many of those moments. This past week, I went to a three-day pastor's conference, leader conference, Christian leader conference, for Harbor Network, as church planting uh, network that we as a church help fund. It's down in Louisville. It's at the convention center downtown. And um, we were sent this, we pastors were sent from Jamal, my buddy Jamal is the president, of, of, of the network, he sent us an email uh, a few days before we came down, and um, it was kind of this preemptive strike. It was like, hey, when you get down here, be nice, be on your best behavior. I'm like, we're pastors, we're going to be on our best behavior. But it, no, it, 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 what it was, was he, he was saying, hey, listen, you guys are all going to be, there's going to be a lot of you down here, um, and he's, he's sta- you know, he stationed there, right? He's a pastor in Louisville. And so um, he's like, be aware. Like, you're going to be at all of you are going to be crammed into these hotels. You're going to be going to the same restaurants, same coffee shops, that sort of a thing. Be patient. Be considerate. Please. And then he linked an article that had come out from the spring in April. There was a really, really, really big Christian conference. I won't name the conference. Really, really big Christian leader conference that happened back in April, this past April. Same location. Louisville, downtown. You're like you're googling Christian conference from April. <laughs> it won't be hard to find. Um, much bigger than ours, and and um, it was a journalist had attended this 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 conference and and was uh, gone around and interviewed <laughs> interviewed people in the service industry all around downtown Louisville. Like, hey, did you recognize all of these people coming in? And what they were here for and all of that. And so as they began to talk to me, what happened, what came out is um, many of the people that worked at the coffee shops, the local baristas, the local waiters, all of those people that in the hotels began to express that their experience, that they had experienced people that were, quote, rude, very, very rude. And sadly for many that were interviewed, uh, the contempt for Christians in the church wasn't so much our conservative beliefs and doctrines that we so often fear that's what we're going to be persecuted for. It was just for everyday, ordinary kind of rude behavior when you're waiting for a table at a restaurant. It is so sad and embarrassing. And so essentially Jamal was like, guys, dude, I'm a local pastor here. Please shut your mouth. Be on your best behavior. There better not be an article come out you know, on us. So I just didn't leave my hotel room. <laughs> it was like, where words are many. It seems that the average person out there, what I'm gathering is most people just expect Christians to be a bit kinder and a bit more patient than the average person. Is that unfair? I mean, the question is, do we think that that is unfair, unreasonable expectation to hold for us as Christian people? I think, <laughs> you just read James 3, I think it's like, no, no, it's not unfair. It is a reasonable expectation 
We hold the words of life. We have been rescued and saved and redeemed. We're being transformed. Our future is secure. We are, we are deeply known and deeply loved. There, there is, should be that expectation that when your latte comes out wrong, you're not freaking out. There are bigger issues. That's reality. It's interesting. We see churches frequently offering seminars and workshops on financial peace and managing money. We see workshops on sexual sin and addiction. And, 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 and listen, rightly so. These issues are really big issues, issues that cause a lot of problems. These are things like sex, money, these power, these are things that are, you know, they're worth us addressing. But seldom do we find workshops on controlling your tongue. I haven't been in one. Seldom, you know, do we see workshops and classes that help us be free from the addiction of defending, boasting, slandering, gossiping, spinning the truth just a little bit to stir up a little bit of trouble, embellishing things just a little bit to make somebody a little bit better or a little bit worse than they really are. It's funny. I've never had anybody walk into my office or ask for a meeting and say, you know what? I have problems with my words. I have just a problem with how I talk. I tear people down, and I notice it. Not heard that one. And that's sadly ironic, <laughs> because um, I think what James is saying here is that getting careful and deliberate about what you share and how you share it is a keystone, a keystone habit. When I'm, listen to what he says. This is uh, verse 2. He, he, he makes it fair. He's like, well, look, we all stumble in many ways. And then he says this, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, says, he is perfect. He's able to bridle his whole body. It's like, you get that in control, you must get everything in control. That's interesting. If you get serious and work on what comes out of your mouth, you will surely be serious and work on probably every aspect of your spiritual life. Keystone habit. I, I, I stole that from Charles Duhigg, a journalist who wrote a book called Power of Habit. But like, it's researched and backed, and the idea, it's like, for instance, people that like, are addicted to smoking and they quit smoking, they also tend to get out of credit card debt. Like It just rolls over. It just turns into this thing where they, like, they conquer this, and it's like, well, I can conquer all of these things. The Bible is saying, you get control of your mouth, you get control over everything. That's so interesting. What I'm saying, what I'm, James is saying, is to get serious about how we talk in areas of life, church, work, school, home, like these areas that we go in. To get serious about how we speak in all of these little realms that we're in is to get serious about your discipleship to Jesus. And I, I, I think that this is true. Two years ago, I was teaching a Sabbath series, six-week, seven-week series on Sabbath. And I very much look at Sabbath as a spiritual discipline like that. I, I, think, I don't think it's like this holier spiritual rhythm practice than the other ones necessarily. But I think for our cultural moment, I think that if you can, if you can think carefully uh, and put attention and energy into a, a habit of Sabbathing regularly, and, and just making that space and that time to be with God in a, in, a, in a slow, attentive kind of way, you can begin to tackle a lot of things. I think if you'll, you'll make time for God, other things will work out in your life. That's how I think of it. I think it's a subversive kind of thing. Do that, and then we'll start talking about other stuff. But you're like, well, I can't do that. And it's like, well, <laughs> why do you think you're going to tackle these other issues in your life? That being said, and, uh, you know, and I'm still for that. I, I see this rise, you know, a good rise, a good, a healthy, good trend of things kind of coming up um, of like spiritual disciplines, fasting, praying, Sabbathing, these sorts of things. And, and, and I think that this is good. I think that there's a 
there's a new development taking place in like kind of a smaller group, minority group of Christians that are starting to recognize we don't have spiritual practices. And so I see this kind of coming up, and, and that's wonderful. However, realize that no spiritual discipline um, that we talk about is quite as difficult as the discipline is dealing with your words. It's why there's this crazy passage in Isaiah 58 where God is speaking through the, pro- to the, through the prophet to the people, and God is telling them essentially, look, if you want me, if you want me to show up in your life, if you want me to take off in your life, and you want to see my power, there's, here's what the problem is. And what's fascinating about Isaiah 58, if you read it, is God just outright says, you, you, you're, you're drawing near to me. You're trying to draw near. You're fasting. But I'm not showing up. And I'm not listening. And you know why? Why he says? He says this. This is verse 9 and 10. He says, remove the heavy yoke of oppression. Stop pointing your finger and spreading vicious rumors. (laughs) That's the reason? It's not the only one. They also weren't helping the poor. But it's fascinating to me that God is like, if you do this, you tackle this issue, you stop pointing the finger at everybody else and telling, saying it's everybody else's fault for the way you talk. If you can do that, my light will take off and shine in your life. That's Isaiah 58. Again, working on your words is working on your whole life. How could that be? Well, think about this. It's, it, I, for those of you, probably all of you, you're already thinking this through. It's, it, it's like this. James can say this. Words are such a huge deal in the Bible because speech is directly tied to your heart. Like, they're just tethered, right? We know that. Jesus said this, it's Luke 6, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. They're tethered so closely, even... If you're someone who tries to keep your heart hidden, which that's some of us, right? Some of it's like on the sleeve all the time. Some of us is like, like you're trying desperately, like I don't want anybody to know that I'm so angry, or I don't want anybody to know that I am so sad, disappointed, frustrated. You know, some of us are trying to hide it, and yet if you open your mouth enough times, the second you do so, your heart will spill out. That's why some people. Usually people we're really close to, like people that you're really close to, somebody you live with maybe, they know you're not well before you do. How? Because of the way you're talking. It's just a dead giveaway. They know from simply listening to us. And, and although maybe we haven't sat them down and said, hey, friend, or hey, honey, inside I'm really afraid, or inside I'm just so full of anger, or inside I'm just so full of bitterness. Even though we think we're processing this just internally, and we're, trying to, or we're just trying to shove these things down, you know, there's feelings, shove them down. Um, even though we say we do that, our impatient words, our hurtful words, our overcritical or short remarks are just signal flares coming out from our hearts. Your heart's in trouble, and everybody's picking up on it. So to shape your words in the direction you want them to go, which is hopefully truthful in, in a loving way, which, by the way, is what the Bible wants for us. Like Paul would say, speak the truth in love. That's just a perfect little summary of like how Christians should talk. Speak the truth in love. If that's what we're aiming for, you aren't just trying to habituate some new Christian lines in your vocabulary. You're trying to get a hold of what's going on inside your heart. That's the work you're doing. So you're trying to figure out what are the wounds that are going on in there? Like, what are the wounds in here, in your heart, that probably stretch all the way back to words that were spoken over you as a child or words that weren't spoken? What, what's the pride? What's going on there? What are you believing about yourself Because words spoke over you. What do you believe about God? What do you believe about them over there? Them over there? That's 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 the work of getting control of your words is to is to start to examine what's going on. 
at the, at the epicenter of where the words are coming from. That's what we're doing. And we're, then when we look at those, we're, we're asking, are these ultimately true? You're, you're doing the work of interrogation on your own heart. The, and and, and it, they're dead giveaway. You know, you listen to your words. I, I mean, I've talked to you guys about this quite a lot this year. I've been taking this course and, and this course on reflective practices, the, the intensive first week intensive I did, you know, I was sitting down with somebody where I was le- learning all this information on how to listen well, how to help direct and guide somebody from the, from the subconscious into the conscious, helping them cultivate insight about what's going on in their life, who God is, how they're dealing with God. I have to regularly, every month, I have to sit down with this person, I have to counsel this person, and I videotape it. Don't worry, it's none of you, and the person is aware. And so I videotape this counseling session with this person, and then I send it to my supervisor, who then watches the video and then sits down with me for an hour and critiques it. So she says, Michelle is her name. She's awesome. I love Michelle. And Michelle will sit down with me, and she'll say, "You look, you said this to them. Why would you say that? And I'm like, what do you mean? Well, I said it because they said this. And, and she'll say, well, what were you feeling when you said it? And I'll be like, well, I don't want to talk about that right now. <laughs> because it gets at the epicenter, right, of like where are these, and that's a luxury that I have, a painful one, a growing luxury. But imagine if all of you had these videotapes playing of your conversations at the grocery store, at work, at the dinner table, in the bedroom, wherever, all these places, and somebody was playing it back and saying, well, I know you said that. What was going on underneath? Well, friend, that's what Jesus is saying was going to happen to you when you meet him. And so it would be wise for us to start to think about those things now. So how do we move forward practically in these things? Well, first realize, and this can be like wah, 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 but first realize there isn't really a technique for you to deploy here, at least not in your own power, that's going to get you mastery over it. And as much as I looked for it, it's not there. It's explicitly told the opposite. (laughs) It's kind of a bit depressing, but James says this, in verse 6 through 8, and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, saying the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and setting on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil. So James is saying, look, us humans, we do incredible stuff. Like we we get a hold of, we get control, we get mastery of, the, of all sorts of really powerful, uh, complex things, right? I mean, we don't just tame animals. We send rockets to the moon. It's crazy, and yet you can't, con- you can't control how you talk at Starbucks. It's just this weird thing, right? Like, we, we don't, it's, we're, it's, we're full of mistakes in this area. We, we cannot seem to crack the code. However, I don't think James means that there is nothing for us to do. You just have to hold it all together. I think he's lovingly pointing us outside ourselves. He's pointing us upward towards God's wisdom there. That's the end of the passage that we read. But to practically go upward to God with this issue, the scary reality is that we have to go downward. In other words, we have to go to lower, low places that we just don't really want to go. What I mean is, is we got to follow our words down into the heart and examine what's churning on inside us, which we just talked about a little bit. But you got to bounce out of chapter 3 and go into 4 and 5, and he kind of works this out. Because you can think, James, it's just like ethics, hardcore ethics, and there's just like no love, no grace at all, man. It's like, no, keep him all together. He wrote five chapters. James 4, verse 1, he says this, What causes quarrels and fights among you? Isn't it just that you guys have passions warring? inside you? In other words, that, that word for passions just means pleasures or desires. And so James is saying, look inward, and you'll find that you've got some desire, some felt need that is unmet. 
That's what's going on. And I don't care, of all ages, it just evolves over time. But he's saying, you got something inside of you that's just not met. A financial thing, a sexual thing, a love thing, an intimacy thing, a friendship thing, a reputation, respect thing. You got a thing going on, and it's not being met, and it's coming out in how you talk to people. That's where the fights and the quarrels are coming from. That's what he's getting at there in chapter 4. So, as long as everything out there, um, you know, it, it, everything out there is the reason for our, un, our hurtful, unloving, untruthful speech, the reason for it, the cause of it is outside of us. As long as we continue to think that way, we're never actually going to get control of our gossip, our slander, our, our, our lies, our harsh language, our impatience. But if we begin to humbly take responsibility for ourselves, not others, you can't take responsibility for how other people talk, but you absolutely can take responsibility for ourselves, which doesn't mean, by the way, that you're never sinned against, because you are. Some people speak horribly sometimes to you and to me. But if we can actually say, okay, what am I, what does God want from me to take responsibility for me? Then if I'm going to do that, then we can actually begin to start to experience healing. Here's the difference. Here's what I mean. Let me just kind of, because this can be a lot. Think about the last time you got angry with somebody and it, it spilled out in words. And you're like, this morning. So probably won't have to go back very far. Think about the last time you got angry and you said something angry, said something that you just know was unloving. Now, um, is, it, is it that the person that you were speaking to, is it that the person did something that made you angry? Or is it that that person did something that just revealed deep down you're an angry person? Maybe <laughs> it's that certain things just are the... The, they're the occasion and the, the, the catalyst for, for peeling the lid off and exposing what's underneath. That doesn't mean what they did is okay. You know, like my kids, it's like my, I, I'm constantly feeling like, you make me crazy. You make me so mad. You, you know, you made me do this. You made me yell. But as I'm trying to grow and mature, I'm like, you do things. You do things. You say things and you do things. And you act in ways that just expose, I have control issues. And this is the thing I have to take responsibility for. There's a huge difference. And some of us just go our whole lives, and it's like everything that comes out of our mouth is everybody else's fault. They made me do it. They made me feel that way. And so long is that's what we're always going to do. We're never actually going to get down here and deal with what's in here. That's what the Bible's saying. That's what Jesus is saying. This is definitely what James is getting at here. The wisdom from above teaches us to look at these occasions as revealers, not causes. And again, I want to be clear. It's not that you're not sinned against. Oh my gosh. Some, absolutely. Sometimes people say things that are just horrible. And, but when we come into awareness of what's been exposed, the true and good response is to draw near to God. You know, James 4.10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. James 5.16, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Now, now think about this. This is so beautiful and powerful because here's what we're learning. Up to this point, we've been talking about how the words are the revealers of our hearts. They, they expose the, the deceit. They expose the wounds. They expose what's happening. Um, but that's not all. Words are also shapers. They, they, they direct your life. We, we confess our failures, what's brewing underneath. That, that, and, and the stuff that's possibly humiliating, 
or embarrassing. Like when we confess that stuff, when we speak it with words, right, out loud to God, to friends, whatever, the stuff that we can't believe that we're still struggling to believe. Like when we say, hey, like this has been coming out of me, it's just I've got an anger problem and it's I can't get control over it and I'm struggling with it. Or, hey, I still believe that I'm just unlovable. Or I, I just still believe that I'm an idiot. And, and it's churning underneath. And when you did that, it exposed that that's a thing that I'm still dealing with. These are like, you, you got all these possible, potentially horribly humiliating things that if you confessed, if you could confess them, get to the bottom of it and confess them, you'd experience healing. The words expose you, but the words heal you. They work backwards. You just need to get at it and say it, name it, and get it out loud. Which, by the way, if we would confess to one another, I think James really knows, this is 400 level stuff. I think James knows what happens when we start confessing our sins to one another. The, The pointing of the finger and the blaming and all of that stuff starts to come way down. It's brilliant when you think about it. We confess this stuff when we experience healing. We say it out loud to trusted friends, and we pray to God, and then he heals us. Words don't just expose us. If we own what is exposed in us and speak them, these honest, humiliating words all of a sudden become healers for us. And the beauty is Jesus stands ready and willing. And I want you to leave this morning with that. He's not just able to forgive and heal. He wants to. He loves to. I, please hear me. Stick with me this, this last minute. It's the whole reason, the whole reason why Jesus came. Like to heal you and me of the things that we do, the words. So when we go to him and we say, I'm a horrible screw up, Essentially, Jesus is saying, thank you for doing this and coming to me. This is exactly why I came. To heal you, to forgive you, to love you. I love it when you confess your mistakes. I love it. Nothing makes him happier than to hear you say, I, this is horrible and embarrassing, but this is what I've been doing. And he's like, thank you. I love you. I, like, I can't imagine my kids screwing up, right? And, and, and then feeling bad about it. And then it, imagine they come to you, you, my kids, and they say, I screwed up. I did this. I said this. I bet my dad is so disappointed. And I wanna, but I want to tell him what I did, and I want to tell him that I'm really sorry. Now, I would hope to God that what you would do is you would look at my daughters and you would say, it's going to be the easiest conversation you ever have. If you will go to him and you say, hey, I screwed up, I'm sorry. I promise you, he will wrap you up in his arms and he'll say, I love you. And I will continue to love you. And there's nothing that you're going to do that's going to separate us. I would hope that you would say that to her. Now, you just need to say that to yourself about Jesus. Nothing would make him happier than to hear you confess the dirty little stuff that we do all the time. Nothing. There's only one place where Jesus tells us explicitly what his heart is like. Dane Norton talks about this in his book, Gentle and Lowly. Matthew 11, Jesus says, I am gentle and lowly in heart. He just tells us what he's like. Like his nature, his posture. That means he's always ready to love. He's always ready to forgive you. He's easy for you to talk to him. He's ready to embrace you. He's never harsh. He's never demanding. He's never going to throw hoops at you. He's never moving the target on you and rubbing it in your face about what you've done. You know, you go to some people and you try to apologize and they just move the target because they just want you to feel a little bit more shame. Jesus doesn't do that, he doesn't move the target. If Jesus is telling us the truth about himself, that he's gentle and lowly in heart, and by the way, I think he is because his whole life backs up that statement, then Jesus is 
the most understanding person in the universe. The most understanding. The posture most natural to him is not a pointed finger, but open arms. That's the posture that is the most natural to him. And Jesus holds up and blesses the sinner who confesses, exalts him or her. And he says, you know, the person who says, here is who I am. Here's what I've done. Here's what I still do. Here's what I still say. And he says, well, they may condemn you, but I don't. I do not condemn you. I love you. I hold you in high esteem, Jesus says. I'm lifting you up. To bless someone means to see them and then to say, I delight in your presence. I'm glad you're here. That's what Jesus says to you when you confess. And so I pray you believe that about him today. This bread that we serve each week here, we get this ritual, this idea, this whole symbolic practice from Jesus himself. We take this bread and we break it just like Jesus did. And we remember that this represents his body broken for us. We take this cup just like Jesus did with his disciples. And we remember that this represents the blood that's been poured out on our behalf. Always ready, always willing, always there to embrace us, to bring us in. And so as you come to communion this morning, take the time to pray. Take the time to use the words that can bring you life, that can bring you healing. Think about the words that maybe need to go beyond just this room and outside of this room, things that need to be said, things that need to be prayed over and offered up so that you might experience peace, so that you might enter into this week and be one who makes for peace. So you're invited to come to this station or this station, taking a piece of the bread, dipping it in the wine or the juice, whichever your conscience permits. Tell him what you need to tell him and keep telling him. Let us pray. Father, we, we give you thanks and we love you and we praise you. You say in your word that we will be justified by our words, but we will also be condemned by our words. So what are the words that we are using? I pray that we think about these words carefully and that I choose words that speak of my own sin, not just not others, but my sin and the things that I'm struggling with and that I offer them to you and then I say, Lord, please heal me of these things because, God, we know that you can and you are always willing. Help those in the room that are struggling to come to you. Help those that are afraid. Help those that are angry. Help those that are so sad. Give us a hope to keep coming to you. Give us a hope to keep going after you, to keep plugging away in this life of faith. We give you thanks for your son. It's in his name, Jesus' name, that we pray. Amen.